Imagine it is the year 2035. What does the world look like? Is the planet warmer? Are your favorite coastal cities underwater? Have we been able to curb the effects of climate change? What technologies have been developed? Are electric cars the dominant vehicles on the road? Are wind and solar the dominant energy sources? Or are there new energy technologies available? What's going on in the disposable hygiene industry? How have the demographics changed? Which trends are still important in the industry and which are not? What regulations are producers and their suppliers facing? We certainly can't predict the future, but we can make some pretty good guesses based on current trends and market shifts. And luckily, Bostic is here to help. Welcome to Attached to Hygiene. I'm your host, Jack Hughes. On every episode of Attached to Hygiene, Bostic and other industry experts provide valuable insight into market and consumer trends in the disposable hygiene industry and how article producers can increase their success and reach their business goals. In today's episode, we're going to be doing something a little different. Rather than covering a topic that we or our guests are experts on, we're instead going to be doing a little time traveling. Bostic and our friends at Avgal will be jumping 14 years into the future to the year 2035. We'll be discussing some of the market trends and changing demographics for our industry, what outside forces will have an impact on absorbent hygiene producers and their suppliers, and how suppliers like Bostic and Avgal are preparing to respond to those expected changes. Here to help me discuss what the disposable hygiene industry will look like in 2035 are Deanne Nelson and Nick Carter from Avgal and Darius Diak from Bostic. Deanne and Nick, as our guests from outside of Bostic, we'll start with you and we'll start specifically with you, Deanne. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in the industry, your current role at, at your company and what you find most interesting about working in the hygiene industry? Certainly. I have been in the non-wovens industry, um, primarily in applied research and development, product development for going on at least 25 years. Um, I have a background in polymer science and engineering. My current role at Avgal is I'm the North American R&D manager, well, R&D and innovation manager. What's interesting about hy the hygiene industry? You know, it's very dynamic, always changing. Obviously, the world is changing. And the products you produce serve people. So you're helping people. You keep them comfortable. You keep them safe. Great. No, I, I think that's one thing that I often overlook is the fact that what each of us produces ends up in a hygiene article that is ultimately helping and serving people. And I, I think that's very easy for, for us to forget just in our day-to-day -day tasks. So I love that you mentioned that, Deanne. And Nick, we'll ask you the same thing. Thank you. My name's Nick Carter. I've been in the non-woven business for a little over 22 years now. My focus has been more in the intellectual property, the marketing, really the, the overall topic of product management. And I've worked for a couple companies during that time and with varying technologies. And I, I think that's probably the part that captures my interest, my uh, drive to be in this industry is that linking technology to products that bring value to our customers and that our customers are bringing to the consumer. I think we saw quite clearly during COVID-19 in the U.S. the impact that not only disposable hygiene products, but cleaning, sanitizing products, wipes, and the importance those kind of products play in our daily life and, and protecting us from all the various situations that can rise up, such as COVID. And the fact that the trends really say that this kind of black swan event, if you want to call it that, this is going to continue, if not heighten, as we go into the next 15 years. So being part of the evolution of our technology to meet those kinds of needs, as well as being compatible with sustainability is very intriguing and uh, is the kind of challenge that really stretches you and makes you need to, uh, to step up 
not only as a company, but personally in how you can uh, contribute to the success of non-wovens in these kind of applications. I, I really love that you mentioned that. And the Black Swan event, you know, I, I think for, you know, all four of us are in the U.S. right now and it's just we're a week or two into summer and it's already been pretty crazy here with weather events and uh, along with the continuing supply chain issues that we're seeing and, and still dealing with the global COVID pandemic. It's it's certainly making for a very interesting summer. And, and Nick, I completely agree. I can't imagine that these type of events are just going to disappear. So that flexibility that you mentioned, I believe you said, is definitely going to be important. And on top of all that, as you also mentioned, being able to adapt with the the trend of sustainability, which we'll also touch on a little bit later, is definitely going to be key for any players to continue to play and succeed in the market. So definitely a great point there. And last, but certainly not least, uh, Darius, would you mind introducing yourself uh, and your role at Bostic and telling us what you find most interesting about the hygiene industry? Sure, happy to. Uh, so I am Darius Diak. I'm the global R&D director for hygiene or non-wovens adhesives at Bostic. I've been with Bostic for about 18 years. I've only been in the hygiene segment for five or six years now. So I guess uh, I'm a little bit of a newcomer in, in some respect. I love the answers that everyone gave regarding, you know, what was most interesting about hygiene. I think I think those were great answers and, and I can echo a lot of them. But what I'll point out is for someone who, who was in other parts of the adhesive market and then moved into the hygiene adhesive area, to me, when I came in, it, it was an area that looked not like a high-tech area. You think about diapers and fem pads and, and you don't think high-tech from the outside. And then when you get immersed in the technology, it was just amazing to see the high tech that's involved and the, the kinds of technology to be able to produce these things and, and make them so that they're safe and, and that they function. And just the amount of science behind all of it, I found really stimulating and, and really you know always got my imagination going and, and really helped continue to drive our innovation. I completely agree as uh, also a relative newbie to the industry, only a, uh, just under five years in the hygiene industry, the amount of complexity that goes into creating a hygiene product, whether it be a, a pad or an adult incontinence product or, or even a baby diaper, there's a ton of technology and innovation in those somewhat simple products. They're not simple, but I think from the outside world, people people certainly perceive them as simple. And yeah, it's, it's amazing just to, once you dive deep into the the individual products, see how complex they are, and and add to that all the machinery and and products and and materials that go into making them. It, it certainly makes for a very innovative and high tech industry, as you said. So now that introductions are done, I I want to give credit where credit is due to to Nick and Deanne and the team at Avgal. Uh, the idea for this episode came from Avgal's presentation at Hygienics 2020. And for those that don't know, Hygienics is a hygiene and non-wovens industry conference that is held every year here in the United States or in North America. And last year it was held virtually, as as a lot of events were. But the presentation you gave, I thought, was incredibly creative and it was a great look at where the industry could be heading. And I know we'll be discussing a lot of the points that you mentioned in that presentation. So I just want to give you both of you credit for that. And, and I'm looking forward to really diving into it further today. Before we dive into what consumer and product trends we expect to see in, you know, in 2035, 10 years from now, or sorry, 14 years from now, or even what position the world and the environment will be in at that time, I want to start with some predictions that we can feel fairly confident about, and that would be market demographics. So Nick, what are some of the current changes and trends in market demographics we think will have an impact on the industry by 2035? I think it's useful to look at kind of a, a near-term, far-term perspective. And in near-term, we have to consider the impact of COVID-19 and what that has done, particularly in North America. That's where I'll focus much of my commentary for this presentation. With COVID-19, the insecurity, I'll call it, of uh, the situation of surety of income, of just COVID itself, not knowing or having 
being very comfortable with masking procedures and vaccines and all of the responses we've had to COVID, the number of babies being born has significantly dropped off over the last 18 months. We are estimating anywhere from 300,000 to 500,000 fewer babies entering into North America, and particularly the U.S., and that's going to have a, a very significant impact on baby care products, obviously. Considering part of that population would go to a, a durable use product, there's still a, a significant impact in terms of disposable hygiene articles. And the U.S. has already been experiencing a, a 1% to 2% drop year over year for quite a few years. I think that goes back to around the, uh, the 1980 timeframe uh, that we've seen a, a fairly consistent drop. And now we have a, uh, the impact of COVID. And so we're going to see fewer babies and the resulting impact that we'll have in the coming years, all the way through to the impact on the Gen Z population and how that's going to have ripple effect back through the adult incontinence, the care of the previous generation. So that's something that uh, we really have to, to consider. And the fact that Gen Y, the, the millennial, is generally putting off having families. They're wanting to have their uh, careers well-established. They want to complete their education. They want to achieve certain goals before they even consider having a family. So this is also having an, an effect on uh, just the creation of families and will likely continue to cause a, a decline in birth rates in the U.S. Uh, we've also got some interesting effects where the Gen Y population would rather not even procreate. Uh, they would prefer to not add to the, the global burden, if you will, that uh, the human population poses. And uh, they are deferring off and uh, focusing more on the uh, what uh, we colloquially call the, uh, the fur babies. So these are having pets instead of expanding their families. So we see a shift from baby care to the pet care. The growth in pet care, already a, a $3 billion market and growing stoutly. So the kinds of products that we will need to support as Avgol, as well as other non-woven manufacturers, the uh, evolution off of baby care into pet care, and then a ever-growing adult population, a, a senior population, where adult incontinence will become an ever-expanding market with growing penetration rates, particularly for developed countries like the U.S. That's really where the, the growth potentials will be. Not to say that baby care is suddenly going to disappear, but in terms of a driver, AHPs, absorbent hygiene products, pet care and adult incontinence will, and particularly adult incontinence, will become king, if you will, as particularly in the U.S., we're already seeing a, a significant shift in units, regardless of the, the COVID effect. So this migration is something that both of our companies will be very much impacted by. And I think when we uh, get into the topic of sustainability on top of all of this and legislation and the various things that impact that, we are going to have both a grand opportunity and a grand challenge set before us. I completely agree. I, as we said in the beginning, the ability to be flexible and adapt and really stay ahead of these types of changes is going to be vital for not only the manufacturers in the industry, the actual article manufacturers or product manufacturers, and we're talking about the fur babies, but yeah, all of the suppliers and, and material producers that support them.
And as someone who falls squarely into that millennial Gen Y group, the thought of not having kids has certainly crossed my mind for a, a number of reasons. And and I also fall into the category of people who own, as you said, fur babies and and kind of put a focus on on that and our dogs. So I completely understand that. And, and I know a lot of my friends fall into that boat as well and are starting families a little later than maybe what my parents would have started or and all their friends and family would have would have started at their age. So. Completely agree with that. Now, you touched on millennials, Nick, and we'll, we'll move on to Gen Z here. Uh, it's no secret Gen Z is going to have a really big influence on the globe overall, but also on our industry. And in 14 years, the oldest members of Gen Z who were born in the late 1990s will be raising younger to teenage age children. And the youngest members will be getting ready to graduate college and start careers and families of their own. What impact do you see this very significant age group having on the industry? That's a very good question. I think our industry is just now trying to get our arms around the Gen Ys. And um, I think as we start getting into the Gen Z, we see Gen Zs being very comfortable with technology, being very inquisitive in nature, and suffering the consequences of all the previous generations leading up to them. And that's where the, the global impact, regional impact of disposable single-use articles, the downsides of those will be much more of a focus. So if I unpack all of this, I think we're looking at an evolution in the purchasing decision. We're all very familiar, I'm sure, with the trust pyramid and, and where a individual will find the kind of information or the sources of information that will drive their purchasing decisions. And I think the classical marketing on the attributes of products, I think that's going to go away and be replaced much more with a, a view of why is this product best for me? And we see the, the foundations of that and such things as Amazon, where going to the reviews of the product and skipping the, the specifications, so to speak, that's what's going on. If other people like a product for their various reasons, that has more sway than our touting of particular attributes in a fabric or in a product and how that brings a value proposition to them, the consumer. And when you take that decision process and the fact that the Gen Z could be, particularly in 15 years, they may be dealing with their grandparents, which would include me over here in Gen X, buying products that grandpa needs to improve the quality of life. So the consideration process is going to evolve where that the input of others holds more sway, adult incontinence, on baby care, on menstruation management products. All of the kinds of AHPs that we are involved with today, seeing those decisions being made at a, at a different level or in a different way. And then the impact of sustainability and uh, whether it be some of these programs such as pay as you throw or uh, the orange bag programs, however, waste management evolves into managing the bringing products, used products, products in and affording recyclability to those products. That's something that the Gen Zers will have to consider more closely than I think any previous generation. And then I think one other aspect that's going to impact the decision process of the Gen Zers is that obviously e-commerce uh, will be even more so the mode or the channel of purchase. Brick and mortar uh, will continue to go away. It brings a, a cost to products and having brick and mortar that really doesn't impact in a beneficial way the decision process. And being smarter about product design, how these products are used, the ease of use, and particularly the cost of use as we look at how the Gen Z population, the income potentials, 
the impacts of just how many Gen Z there are, that ratio to an aged population, being able to support not one parent, but potentially a married couple. You may have four parents that are all moving into this phase of need. And because of ever improving uh, medical capabilities, the science of medicine and uh, extending lifespans, the potential of having four sets of parents living well into their 80s and 90s is going to be much more likely than any previous generation. So I don't envy the Gen Z population. They're going to need to be able to do more with less. And I think as product manufacturers, as component manufacturers, it's going to be incumbent upon us to identify ways to also achieve more from less and uh, make products that bring high value, but maybe have more inherent capabilities that are simpler in construction that are have a lower cost point. So this is going to be a very interesting interplay of variables as we get out into that 14, 15 year time period. A lot to unpack there. And, and I completely agree with all of it how Gen Z chooses to adjust, evolve, react to, as you put it, living with the consequences of previous generations. And that that's not just the baby boomer generation and, and Gen X, but also millennials and, and what we've done and not done as far as the environment goes or how we've been able to make changes to consumer expectations and, and retailer accountability. It, it's been really interesting to watch just over the last few years. And I look forward to seeing how it continues to evolve as, as you put it, the Gen Z population becomes a bigger part of the workforce as, as their own disposable income and are making their own independent purchasing decisions on more major life purchases. So that'll be, that'll be really interesting. And the other thing I really liked that you touched on was that trust and product reviews aspect where, you know, when I was growing up, the internet was around, but it certainly wasn't the tool it is today. When you would go to make purchasing decisions, it was all about referrals or recommendations from friends or family and, and you know people in your kind of close sphere. And now you can go on Amazon and see a review from someone in a completely different country and time zone buying the same product as you and giving an opinion on it. And, and I know I pretty much any purchase on Amazon that's above a couple bucks, I'm going to that review section and checking it out. And it certainly influences my purchasing decisions. And there's a lot to think about there and, and keep in mind. And, and obviously even more so for producers and manufacturers and even retailers like Amazon to make sure that they're keeping consumers happy. Now we've touched on a lot of consumer expectations and also demographics, and, and now we'll touch on some outside industry factors or outside factors that are impacting our industry. And you've mentioned a few of them, Nick, but we'll dive deeper there. So what are these outside factors that you see having an impact on the disposable hygiene industry? I think I'll focus on two key outside factors to kind of talk around for a bit. One is legislation. The actions in the EU to uh, address single-use plastics, where have AHPs fallen within the definition of plastics, even the uh, personal protective equipment, masks, also falling into the legislation and activities. Europe is really a pulse point for new legislation. And then California and uh, to a slightly lesser degree, New York, being where we see much of the legislation activities in Europe starting to make inroads into the U.S. And uh, I might kind of <laughs> call it California dreaming. But the problem we have is that legislators are certainly listening to their constituents. They are hearing that we don't want these fugitive plastics showing up on our beaches and, and killing marine life and having impacts on financial impacts on local uh, governments to clean all this up. So what we've got right now, and I don't really see a lessening occurring anytime soon, is legislation is really getting ahead of technology. And this is creating some very difficult situations for us in that there's a desire to ultimately ban many of the in-use articles that are showing up as waste without a solution being in hand. And this is 
is really quite a challenge for all of us that are vendors into these markets. And we're, we should expect to see a, a progression of impact as the simplest products that are out in volume show up in these various uh, waste streams, such as menstruation products. I think what we'll find is legislation will first focus there and then progress up through baby diapers, uh, adult incontinence products, these complex articles that have multiple components, quite often of varying composition. And as those products become banned, what's the alternative? And are legislators considering the impact of these bans? I think if you take baby diaper, for example, California is going to reevaluate in 2025. So relatively soon, their position on baby diaper as a waste stream and a, particularly as a, a single use plastic. Right now, we don't have a grand solution on how to replace those products with something that is entirely bio-based or uh, has a, a complete degradability or ha even has a readily uh, recycled deconstruction of those products uh, so that the, the polyester components can go one direction, the polypropylene can go another, and the, the used sap in, in yet another direction. Those technologies are, are being worked on, but they're certainly not at the point of implementation. So I think keeping a very close eye on where uh, legislation is going on with regard to single-use plastics, what's being defined within those single-use plastics, and how that impacts hygiene products, that's going to be a hotbed of discussion and one that even companies such as Adfall are having to consider getting involved and ensuring that our voice is also heard in the development of uh, legislation around single-use plastics and ensuring that there's a, an understanding of the reality. I don't think California is quite prepared to go to complete use of reusable diapers and the impact that would have on the available water sources. Uh, Multi-year drought doesn't really suggest you want to be doing a lot of wash. So does a durable, reusable diaper make sense? It's one of those situations where uh, people need to be careful what they ask for. The other topic uh, that I'd like to touch on is, is again, the, the wonders of black swans. I think COVID really caught us unawares. And I don't think anybody would really argue that point, particularly when they went to the, the grocery store and uh, tried to buy certain products during those times. The world is getting smaller with all the new technologies and integration of those technologies into our systems. A hiccup anywhere in those now rather complex systems suddenly has far-reaching effects. And I think we can uh, not only looking at, at the grand effect that COVID had, but let's consider just the last 12 months where we've had, who would have thought Texas freezing over was going to be on the, uh, the agenda and uh, the significant impact that had on resin availability. A lightning strike at a particular plant suddenly shuts down a supply of material. Who would have known? hurricanes, tornadoes, freight disruptions. Uh, how about this little situation of hacking a gasoline supply line? Who would have thought, let alone who would have thought the nationwide impact that some of these situations are having? And I think the whole issue of resource availability, whether it's water, land, food scarcity, the impact that these are having and the ripple effects. All of a sudden, you've got a higher heat index going on in parts of the U.S. that have not experienced these before. Uh, all of a sudden, there's a higher demand on the grid, the electrical grid for more power. The electrical grid is not used to this kind of demand at this point in the year. Can it keep up? Question mark. So going forward, I think we need to be a little more prepared. We need to 
take lesson from what's happened in COVID, what's happening now in all of these weather-induced events, and think about how these kind of things are impacting our businesses and how can we minimize those impacts, not only for our own business, but how that impacts our customers and then the ultimate consumer and see where we have opportunity to make improvements that limit the impact of a, a black swan, an unexpected event might have on the product and the availability of product. Yeah, that preparation that you mentioned, I think is definitely gonna be key. And and it's it's not just and consumers preparing or or stocking up or or what have you. And 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 also not just, you know, the people in our industry preparing for these types of black swan events, but also all the way up to governments and these pipelines and natural gas producers and shipping companies. It's really a, across the board and and it's interesting to see how, for lack of a better word, unprepared some some companies and industries really are for some of these changes. But as you said, Nick, we're gonna have to evolve. We're gonna have to adjust and, and be prepared. Otherwise Otherwise, we're going to continue to run into these problems. And I think that's the that's maybe some of the positives coming out of all the craziness now of, of you know, supply issues and, and disruptions is people are evolving and, and realizing that, you know, maybe what the status quo is, isn't isn't always working out so well. <laughs> and I. I also wanted to have a, a quick aside on what you talked about with legislation and maybe legislators being a bit ahead of technology and are, are they considering the impact of some of the decisions they made? I read a story a while ago and I think it was actually shared within our company as we have a facility in Mexico City and they mentioned a a, a tampon ban in Mexico City, the, the local government banned tampons. And you know some environmental groups praised it, but where it fell short was the stores, the producers, things like that, weren't ready with alternatives, you know, and, and even uh, consumers weren't ready with alternatives. They didn't know this was coming. They weren't, they couldn't go out and buy, you know, whether it be menstrual cups or period underwear or things like that. There, there was no real warning for this. And I think it's a great example, as you said, of maybe legislators not get considering the impact of their decisions and not giving people time to prepare. So, you know, some of the things in California, you mentioned 2025 for reconsidering the impact of diapers and things like that. It does give industries a little bit of time to kind of adjust and figure out if they can find solutions for that. So always adjusting, always being flexible. And, and as you mentioned, trying to be prepared as possible. So that was a lot there. We, we covered a lot in the state of demographics and, and some of the impacts on the market and the industry and where things are going. Now we'll touch on how both Avgo and Bostic see the industry evolving and where we see products going and, and how this is going to end up impacting and changing the industry. And so Deanne and Darius, this is where we're, we'll kind of turn things over to you. Uh, we'll start with, with you, Deanne. W with all of that in mind, all that Nick just mentioned and we've all we've talked about, what do products and new innovations in the disposable hygiene industry look like in 14 years? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great lead in because really what's going on today is driving innovation today and driving that innovation that will lead to the products for the future. You know, one of the things as a scientist, as an engineer, I want to bring up is we often use the term plastics, and that's an easy word to use, but it misrepresents the complexity, the value, the benefit of the material. So I prefer to use the term engineered polymeric material because what we're talking about today and what we're going to be using tomorrow are, they're highly engineered and they can be highly engineered to be responsibly sourced, responsibly used and managed. How we're doing that today is allows us to create what we're going to be doing tomorrow. So during the presentation that we gave at Hygienics, we talked about imagine a modular type product. Again, how do you make something that's going to fit the needs of the consumer, but also be sustainable? So, you know, having that's a, a hybrid and it's a modular where you could have, depending on the application and the consumer's need, something that could be a combination of reusable and disposable, something that could be biodegradable where that makes sense, something that could be compostable depending on the region. Uh, I think what's really going to be key is it's not going to be one size fits all. As Nick mentioned, you know, with California, if you go to a complete ban on that terrible thing that's plastic that I would prefer to call an engineered polymeric material, 
it's a little bit simplistic. Okay, so we want to get rid of that bad thing. So we're going to go to 100% durable. Oh, wait a minute, there's a water shortage. So maybe in areas where there's a shortage of water, maybe it makes sense to have something that is compostable and uses less water or is biodegradable. So to me, when I look at the future, it's really going to be modular. We're going to end up with components that consumers can put together to meet their needs. If you talk about the adult incontinence, you know, again, active adults wanting things to be more discreet to get away from the stigma of having to go that buy that big adult diaper. So if you had a modular type material, will that help or enable or make it easier for people to use if you have a um, a more underwear-like product that has pockets or places where something can be put in and insert? Does that remove the stigma from, say, an, a, a male wanting to use the product? I think it's really going to be in 2035, we'll have disposable products, we're going to have biodegradable products, we're going to have reusable products, and they're all going to fit together. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a lot we can build off there. I, I think from what Nick was saying earlier and, and everything about sustainability and new legislation, obviously 14 years from now, I think a lot of these things that are not ready today, you know, such as a compostable solution, such as a recyclable article solution, all these things I think will likely be in place in, in 14 years. I mean, there's such a strong drive right now. And I agree it's not going to be one size fits all. I mean, that just makes complete sense that that different parts of the world are going to want different solutions to what makes sense for their situation. I do, uh, or I did really enjoy uh, Deanne's <laughs> description of plastic bands because, you, you know, really, what is the definition of a plastic? And, and uh, I also have a background in polymer science. And I think that's, yeah, that always kind of amuses me because, you know, okay, a plastic's a polymer, but then a polymer, so, you know, cotton's a polymer. I mean, we, you know, where do, we, where do we do this cutoff of what's a plastic and what's not a plastic? Exactly. Um, <laughs> so um, I do get that, and, and maybe someone in legislature has has a definition somewhere that they use, but maybe a a scientist could poke holes in that definition like a hundred different ways. I don't know, but I, regardless of that, that's kind of an aside. I think when we look at these products, I think these points of sustainability, of safety. Of, of meeting the needs of society are, are going to be driving what's out there. And I think it's kind of as, as simple as that. I mean, you know, people are still going to need some kind of diaper or pad kind of solution. And, and so the need's gonna be there. So how can we meet that need that also meets the changes that are happening in society? Oh, I completely agree. And again, I think, you know, the thing is today we struggle with the terms sustainability and what does that mean? Hopefully by 2035, we'll have a clear definition or an alignment on what it means. It's not going to be one thing, but maybe better defined than it is today. And then you, again, you know, there's the hope that as you go forward, that what we're building today, the infrastructures, et cetera, all around will enable certainly multiple approaches to sustainable management of materials, whether it's a the circular economy where you have you know, advanced recycling of poly elephants, whether you, you know, where you have improved infrastructure around composting. And one, again, can imagine having products that are designed for specific uses that can also have a built-in trigger or can have a trigger applied. So if the product is intended to be biodegradable, that it can be triggered when one desires it to start to degrade. I think there's, you know, it's these are going to be highly engineered. They may look simple, but I don't think that they will be simple. That's a, a great point, Deanne. For us in the industry, these products as they stand right now aren't aren't simple and you know, maybe and consumers see them as relatively simple products. But as Darius mentioned a little earlier, they're not. There's a lot of technology that goes into them on on multiple levels. And I I agree, I don't see them getting any simpler as we start talking about needs for different regions and figuring out what does sustainability mean and things like that. That I just don't see them getting getting much simpler. That they're definitely gonna get more complex to be able to meet the needs of 
the different players in the market. To touch on a, a thing, a few of the things that Deanne and Darius said. Deanne, I, I love the idea of regional products. It's something that I've never thought about. Darius and I, we live here in the Midwest. We're based uh, in in Milwaukee and Wisconsin, a little bit north of Chicago. But you know, out where where Nick is, toward in Arizona, towards California, water's a, a little bit of a different thing. Freshwater's a little bit different, and we have a giant lake here near us that we use as a freshwater source. But those resources are disappearing in California. So as Nick and Deanne said, being able to wash a, a reusable product out there may not be a long term solution. So do these producers have to have compostable or biodegradable? products out there, but maybe maybe in the Midwest, we focus more on reusable products. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. Are our companies willing to adjust to that or do different players come into the market that can support those type of changes or differences in one region and while a different company focuses on a different region? And what does that mean for multinational or, or global corporations and how do they adjust? I think it'll be really, really interesting. And Deanne and Darius talking about what is a plastic we've been having discussions within Bostic about the single single use plastic ban in in the EU and even within there there are some differences in what a plastic is that I found very interesting and I don't have it in front of me but the difference between I believe tampons were considered single use plastics but other similar items like pads and, and other things were not and, and all of the things that go into that and and there's probably lobbying and things like that that goes into it as well and so it'll be really interesting to see how that works out but overall as we move forward I, I don't want to speak for any of you, but I am very optimistic about where the industry is going and and where the you know the globe is going overall as it comes to sustainability. And I think as as you mentioned, Deanne, the, the changes that are being made today, the things that are are being put in place today, are moving us forward to a, a better place um, and and one that you know everyone is is adjusting to, but hopefully will be you know a more sustainable, environmentally friendly place than we are today. And and Darius, as you mentioned, the health of consumers is top of mind overall. And so we want to be in a, a safer and healthier place as well there. Now, to wrap up, you know, we we mentioned these changes that we anticipate coming based on all the information that Nick shared. So I, I want to give the opportunity for, for both Nick and Deanne to talk about what Abgal is doing to address the trends and changes in the marketplace, as well as you, Darius, to talk about what, what we at Bostic are doing to address these changes and, and preparing for the future. So Nick and Deanne, we'll start with you. What is Abgal doing to address the changes in the marketplace? If I can kind of get the ball rolling. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> so for Abgal, we're looking at what can we impact in terms of the overall article based on the fabric components that we can provide. And when we look at it, it's actually a rather large matrix or, or a map where recyclability is the go-to. That should always be our default position, that any kind of complex AHP has the ability to go through an appropriate process where the components can be returned uh, and used either in same or similar applications. When that's not achievable, such as fugitive plastics, things that have gotten away from the waste stream or never even entered the waste stream, this is illegal dumping, this is, or as simple as an individual dropping their mask, for example. Dealing with that in the form of biodegradation, biotransformation as various mechanisms to induce the breakdown, the decomposition of that material into key components and uh, those key components having less environmental impact than having the, the actual article uh, wandering around causing uh, any sort of undue or unexpected damage to the environment. So looking at that as part of our matrix, uh, looking at replacing certain things as colorants, getting away from any of the kinds of colorants that may have a, a metal component and getting into more of a bio-based kind of colorant or bio-derived colorant. Same with uh, surfactants. When we need to take a polypropylene and, and we're very wedded to polypropylene and looking at how to bring polypropylene into the future as a sustainable material, making that hydrophilic and uh, using bio-based or bio-derived surfactants that are also biodegradable. 
when you get into the whole biodegradation side and, and dealing with fugitive plastics and the significant financial impact that those are going to have for the key brands, dealing with all of that and creating a system that when it biodegrades doesn't create another problem, such as a, a release of a, a colorant or a surfactant or some either a melt additive or other topical that can cause a problem in the environment. So we have to take a very holistic approach to making sure that we've got technologies that work together. And as part of that, and a a challenge I would come back to Bostic with is recyclability being first and foremost the best way to bring a used engineered polymer product in a, um, a used uh, single-use product. Being able to stick all these various components together in a durable way so that they survive the manufacturing process, the, the life cycle of use, and then having it be a product that can be deconstructed with increasing ease. How to get that polyester component out of being connected to a polypropylene component, which is next to a polyethylene component. All of these elements that are within, let's pick on a baby diaper, having it serve its life and then be adaptable to recycling and that deconstruct, the rapid deconstruction and ease of deconstruction of the used article back to those components that can then enter individually into a recycle stream. That's that's a hot topic, I think, for this industry in particular. And to come up with a, a technology that supports that kind of recyclability. Really, Nick, what you're really talking about is the change from we're continuing to design for performance, but now we must also design for sustainability. Indeed. So, so Nick, you gave me a, a perfect opening. Yeah. So we do we do have programs that are looking at you know coming up and and innovating around adhesives that would promote recyclability. So that's a that is a, a serious area of focus that we have. You, you know, we do a lot right now in in hygiene. We spend a very high percentage of our development time around these sustainability topics compostability, biosourced, recyclability, these are all really key topics that that we're focusing a lot of efforts around today. And even you know to the point as as you know people on on your side uh, come up with you know new sustainable substrates, we need to make sure that the adhesives still stick to them. You, you know there there's no guarantee that as as the industry maybe changes some of that, that the standard adhesives of today would work with them. And so that's another area of focus of looking at where substrates are going. What are some of the trends there? What are some of the new polymers that may be utilized? And then make sure that we have solutions. You know, we see ourselves as a solution provider and and we need to make sure that the adhesives we provide still fit the need. So that's another another big area that we continue to focus on and, and make sure that, that we're on the cutting edge. It's good to hear that. And I think we're going to have to work even closer, as I mentioned, the, the colorants and surfactants and other melt additives and all sorts of things that could be in, in or on the non-woven fabric component that could certainly adversely affect what has historically been used as the adhesive to combine those kinds of materials. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I think, you know, as the industry moves to, to some of these new solutions that are so far out of the historic materials that everyone is used to using, it is going to have to be, uh, I think more collaborations are going to be needed. There's just no way around it because it's all one ecosystem. And as one component changes, it's going to change the need of another, which is going to change the need of another. And so if we all operate in a vacuum, it's just going to slow things down incredibly. Agreed. I totally agree with that as well, Darius. And I, I know you know this, but one thing we're always trying to get across is as, and I, and we usually direct it towards the producer, but now I, I guess we got to broaden the, the scope of this comment is, you know, as changes are being made, we want to be involved so that, as you said, we, we know we can make sure that, you know, everything's 
working together, everything can be bonded correctly and, and the product isn't failing for the end consumers. So it's uh, it's definitely going to be a big challenge to not just stay on top of the trend of sustainability overall, but really in the nitty gritty of it, understanding what changes are being made at the individual material level and making sure that us as an adhesive provider, or us as a bonding solution provider can really respond. I completely agree. As we work together, we also have to be careful that there aren't unintended consequences. You know, and it's, it's so important that we, we do combine. You could imagine maybe an adhesive that seems great, but actually somehow interferes with a trigger that would cause the biodegradation. So you've got a great adhesive, a great product, but combined, they no longer work, not the way we intended. So again, working together is, is, is super critical to make sure that we do deliver and, and don't interfere with our intended use. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely clear. And, and you know, I think, right, if you have a compostable substrate and we're bonding it together with a non-compostable adhesive, that doesn't seem like that would work very well. You know, I think there's a smarter way to do it. And I think collaborating or working together and making sure that we all have the right solutions to bring the, you know, hygiene producer is going to be the best way to move forward. Absolutely. And, and, and Deanne, I think that goes back to your comment of really figuring out what does sustainability mean in the industry and, and maybe not just from, it could be with, you know, within a customer, but maybe from customer to customer, sorry, our, our customers from, you know, the end producers, from producer to producer and, and as an industry overall, how are we defining it and what does it mean and, and how are we all able to adjust and be flexible to meet the needs of, of the end consumer and, you know, as you said, not interfere with the intended use or end of life of the products and, and make sure that we're supporting the, the environment as well. Certainly no shortage of challenges for all of us in the industry. But I think as we said at the beginning, that's that's certainly what makes it fun and interesting and and really exciting to be a part of. Absolutely agree. And it'll be uh, really how we continue to keep AHPs, Observant Hygiene Products, as a viable uh, solution going into the future. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely agree. Well, Deanne, Nick, Darius, I really want to thank all three of you for being on the show today. I really loved the conversation. I loved where it went. I loved what we covered. As I say one of the things I always try to get out of these episodes is to learn something new and, and yeah, have a new way of thinking of, about things. And, and certainly the, the topic of conversation caused that today. And I'm very happy about that. So thank you all for your time. And I just want to really say I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you much. On uh, behalf of Abcall, we, we appreciate this opportunity and uh, we look forward to further discussions in the future. Indeed. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jack. You, you do a great job with the hosting. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We've got more great episodes coming with guests from both inside and outside of Bostic covering a variety of topics. And we're excited to be sharing those with you in the coming weeks. Attached to Hygiene is brought to you by Bostic and is hosted by me, Jack Hughes. It is produced and edited by me with the help of Paul Andrews and Michelle Tonkovitz, Emery Chernis, and Nikki Ackerman at Green Onion Creative. Our theme music is by Jonathan Boyle. You can follow Bostic for more hygiene industry insights on LinkedIn at Disposable Hygiene Adhesives or email us with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes at hygiene at bostic.com. That's H-Y-G-I-D-N-E at Bostic.com. We'd also like to extend a special thank you to our guests, Deanne Nelson and Nick Carter from Avgal and Darius Diak from Bostic. Deanne and Nick are both on LinkedIn, and you can reach out to them directly at their email addresses, which we have included in the show notes. You can follow Avgal for news and updates on LinkedIn at Avgal Nonwovens. You can also find Darius on LinkedIn, or you can feel free to address any emails to him at the hygiene at bostic.com email address I just mentioned. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast, rate and review the show, and share us with a friend or colleague. You can find Attached to Hygiene wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.